0: TNKR Media.
1: Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you today. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. We're in, into our 15th year, Mike, and it's so remarkable. Uh, I, I've never had a media gig last this long because it's just so much fun, frankly. I mean, every week it's just a, a different angle for inspiration. And on today's show, again, something really new, um, an employee who became an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's fascinating. We have a lot of these people in our organizations. You know, our, we we talk about the shortages of staffing. We talk about the inability to get quality people. Um we often overlook the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe they're not the majority of people in our businesses, but we have some really, really entrepreneurial, passionate people about our business. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're sitting in a, a staff shortage right now. So I have a tendency to be a little more white gloved with everybody. I think uh, where the economy is going, we're going to start to see some of that change, but I got to tell you, anybody who has uh, an individual, like we're talking about with Alex today, who is an employee, uh, these are the people you want to keep. These are the people you got to latch onto. They're, they're the future of your business and whether that is continuity of the business from an ownership perspective or whether that is just ensuring that there are another set of eyes and selling the way you would these
1: are the people you got to keep and there are plenty of employees who have entrepreneurial instincts maybe they're early on in their career maybe they don't have the capital to start their own businesses we're going to ask alexandre and i'm curious what your advice is mike how to navigate a company how to position yourself as a potential future shareholder
0: yeah, I think there's a couple of things you got to recognize early on from an entrepreneurial standpoint is you have to have some sort of risk tolerance. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be able to accept the fact that, you know, there's going to be risk coming at you on a regular basis, one way or another, you've got to accept the fact that you don't always know what tomorrow is many employees will bank on the fact that they have a payroll as opposed to worrying about what tomorrow may bring from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And and I think the last one is, is you got to look at it uh, as an employee got to look at it as if it, if it was your business. And and you know, there's, we always talk about, you know, oh, those employees think like employees, but you know, or or you know, sometimes you even have owners who think like employees, which are which are very difficult. But you know, for that handful of people, make sure you position yourself and say, hey maybe you don't have the capital but can you handle the risk that's associated with it and you know i don't want to turn into uh, i don't want to turn into a uh, you know a, a little bit of a philosophical discussion but you know if you can't handle uh, you can't handle the heats there to the kitchen if you can't handle the risk maybe you're not really meant to be an entrepreneur
1: we're going to talk to alexandre Guimont of altitude sport an online uh, sporting apparel retailer uh, he's coming up and peter moretis is going to talk about some tax issues uh, with rising uh, inflation. So how the inflation can impact your tax bills. We're going to talk about that later in the program. But first, current affairs as usual, Mike, and I want to start the new year by talking about Web3 cryptocurrency and the move on the part of some businesses to go into this kind of virtual metaverse kind of world. I want to read you um, one quote here. I thought that was funny. In the context of the the failure a few months ago of FTX, which is the cryptocurrency exchange. So uh, new CEO John Ray is a specialist in this kind of thing. He saved several companies. He was with Nortel and others. Uh, he was with also Enron, interestingly, and uh, recovered after that company scandal. He says the following, Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. What is it about this space that is, seems immune from the basic functionings of corporations and the basic rules of markets and business.
0: Well, I could start off with a quote, basically from Warren Buffett, who, uh, you know, from from the beginning of this, is is basically looked at this and 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 questioned this as the next bubble. I, whether it is or it's not, I guess is irrelevant. But certainly, from an an older, uh, more uh, value driven investor like a like a Buffett, uh, there's so much that's unknown about cryptocurrency, and you know, a lot of people think they understand it, and even half of those probably don't really understand it. And cryptocurrency has suffered, uh, you know, from a number of things, cybersecurity issues, uh, just the plain understanding of what it is and how it operates. It's highly volatile. Um, There's still no long term proof in the pudding yet in terms of how it's ever going to be applied other than behind the scenes. I mean, the governments haven't agreed on how to tax it. Uh, We haven't agreed on whether there can be one currency. How are you going to adjust it on on an exchange rate? Or is it going to be the universal currency at which point in time how does that affect uh inflation deflation uh stagnation and everything within various different countries so it, there's a lot of things that really just haven't been touched on and that fall into i guess what we would consider to be sane and 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 stable financial practices so there's certainly a component of this it's a bubble and i mean there's no doubt if you know if you're on the wrong side of of chasing it upwards um you know it can be very costly to get involved a lot of people have lost a lot of a lot of people made a lot of money and a lot of people have lost a lot of money in a very short period of time and you go back before uh before the the holidays and, you know just following the FTX and and um you know w- what we dealt with um, is Alameda research there was a few others and you know w- all of a sudden, you know, somebody made the made the comparison to the, you know, the banking crisis of 1930 and 1931 and and this whole financial contagion mentality about how it just snowballs into an effect. And, you know, as we watched what, you know, happened over the, you know, the the six or eight weeks um Towards the end of November and into you know, early January, and we look at what's gone on, uh, there's no doubt that there, there's a lot of people a little worried about what the overall effect is. And, and I think for those non-believers and non-investors in crypto, they may even be more concerned because there's actually a massive impact on the market that they figured was a fad in a bubble.
1: I'm not going to come down on all crypto. I'm not going to say it's you know, not eventually going to work itself out and be a part of, you know, sort of our, our monetary systems. But for, on the early going, at least from what I can observe, Mike, the people that are into this and into Web3 and putting all their businesses 100% in the metaverse and all that, we're not talking about the most productive people necessarily in the business community. And some are are sort of, I think, dodging their responsibilities as entrepreneurs. I saw one consultancy, they they announced they were going to open their metaverse office and all that and they're going to you know do business in crypto on, online and have the meetings in the metaverse and all that. I'm thinking wh- wh- is there a demand for that? I mean we're we're heading into a recession. There's there's serious problems around the world. Does anyone have time to play around in video games virtually and and what is the value add for business? Well, I'll tell you, there's only one thing that, you know,
0: saves our economy in and out of recessions and and and, and everything, and that's human greed. So, so long as human greed can pre- prevail in something, you're always going to have somebody that's going to jump on board and and find a purpose for it. You know, my, my bigger problem with, with a lot of the cryptocurrency, once you get past the, there's, there's a very logical component to this in the blockchain element, in terms of safety and security, there's a lot of really good things. But the unregulated component to this, you know, kind of feeds off what many people have complained on for years. Who were your first users of cryptocurrency? I mean, other than the techies, it was criminal use, right? So, you know, when your underlying basis for, for something starts out like that, uh, you know, you, you need to establish, as you said at the beginning of this segment, you need to establish some standards, some criteria, some, some rules of engagement that people are going to use to go forward. And I think that uh, most of the people that have been involved
1: in this have either skirted those issues uh, or uh, downright uh, avoided them. I don't know if you caught the big news about the metaverse late last year, Mike, but there was a major technical development. Uh, the uh, avatars, the character, the people in the metaverse uh, got legs. So they they made the press release that we now have legs for people in the metaverse. Big news.
0: Yeah. And uh, and shortly thereafter, I watched the price on some of these uh, the metaverses and the value had gone up. So cryptocurrency was collapsing on one side, yet the values in the metaverse were going through the roof. So, you know, I got to
1: look at this and go, really, dude? <laughs> do we have any idea what we're doing? <laughs> Uh, yeah, with all the problems Twitter has, I mean Facebook put a bet a lot on the metaverse and it's not necessarily working out so far. Um, also in uh, in e-commerce, let's talk a bit about Jeff Bezos. Uh, this is from Inc.com. He and a Nobel Prize winning economist who advises him use intuition to make better decisions. What is intuition? You know, people say going with your gut, but when does intuition start, and when does the education you've accumulated over many years and your experience could kind of become intuition?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I, would love to sit here and tell you I know where that line is for everyone. I mean, the reality is, is, is really intuition is, you know, people have said for years that there's this common misconception that in, intuitive decisions are random. Uh, they signify a lack of skill. They're irresponsible. They are. Uh, not based in fact. Uh, But I think if you drill down on the research, uh, you'll find that a lot of those decisions that, that become gut or intuitive are really, like you said, based on years of experience and years of understanding and uh, if you will, let's call them educated guesses in some cases, but, you know, we, 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 we've said before that, you know, you, you, luck has a part of things. And, and I think luck and uncertainty and timing all form part of, of making a good decision. And, and there's no doubt that, you know, many people have succeeded where others have failed based
1: on their gut. And I don't think you can leave that out of a, out of a conversation. Now, when you say the gut, I mean, ultimately, you know, most of that is an entrepreneur's acquired knowledge. I mean, you know, going back to even George W. Bush he used to say he made decisions, you know, just for, right from the gut. And um, but in reality, you know, there's there's probably stuff hidden back there that's that's informing those decisions.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of subconscious involved in our decision making process. And if we take a look back after the gut decision, we can probably point to those those decisions pre that or the mistakes we make pre that that defined our ability to make that gut decision uh, or that intuitive decision. So I, I, I don't think it's, you know, I, you wake up in the morning and make a, a a bland call. I don't think the intuitive as to whether, you know, uh, something you know nothing about uh, is all that good. I mean, if it was that good, people had that kind of gut feeling. They'd buy a lot of tickets and win on a regular basis. So, you know, here what we're really talking about is 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 the ability to put into practice without maybe the, the definition of the supporting documentation behind it in order to justify a, a relatively sane decision that may not appear like that to everybody.
1: Just a pop quiz for you, Mike. What, what's an example of a of a gut decision in business you've made that's paid off?
0: Well, I, I think you've got to feel. Let Let's talk about the radio show. Uh, you know if you want to talk about something you go back 15 years when uh, when Josh malinari decided that it was time to do a radio show we took an opportunity in the marketplace where radio ads and 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 radio time was suffering so heavily from the Great Recession that it was almost kind of a, a mindless decision to continue to, to to drill this forward and move forward with it it was a gut decision of making a call when everybody was selling we bought and vice versa and you know I think the I think the the show's 15 years like you said you've never had a gig this long so I think which was um a terribly uninformed or we thought an uninformed decision at the time actually turned out really well
1: never had a media gig last this long never wanted to have a media gig last this long either uh, that's the great thing about the the show is it did start during a uh, during a a recession today we see it's it's also media is suffering because of the onslaught from digital but I think now is a time when people are actually going to start flocking back to traditional media we see some of that market share slipping away from Facebook and Twitter the, their results are not being delivered in the same way that traditional media delivered in in, in recent years so I'm optimistic anyway about the future of media and, and our place in it
0: yeah i agree i you know i mean whatever that looks like going forward i mean the the ability to to have an opinion and to share that opinion and and have a way to to get information across to people I, there's so many different ways to do it. And just because it might
1: not be hip and sexy doesn't mean it's not effective and, and useful. Yeah, I mean, there's the metaverse. But there's also, you know, a 75 year old institution uh, that allows us to have these conversations. So it's really great. I just fear somebody's going to turn me into an avatar and, and make my legs even shorter than they are now.
0: <laughs> well, you can you can adjust your avatar any way that you like, Mike, it's the metaverse. Oh man, maybe I
1: can hit five six or five eight if I if I can do that. Somebody, somebody, give me an avatar quick. <laughs> okay, Mike, it's time to get right to our guest. His name is Alexandre Guimont, He's the co CEO of Altitude Sport and the Last Hunt. Alexandre, welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So, first question is the easiest. What is Altitude Sport?
2: Oh, Altitude well, Sport. We are one of the e commerce leaders in the Canadian market. We really our goal is to equip our customers with the best possible product, which means that they have to be well-designed and as durable as possible. Uh, so we really, uh, we sell premium apparel, premium gear uh, at the intersection of outdoor and fashion. So you can imagine brands like uh, Donald Face, Patagonia, Icebreaker, Canada Goose, Macash, Barber, and so on. We sell uh, uh, more than 400 brands. Um, and in terms of categories, we started with uh, mainly hiking, camping, traveling, but expanded quickly in other segments like uh, uh, ski and snowboard, cycling, running, yoga, training, and so on. So really, our goal is to follow our customers and in, in their adventures, whether it's around the cottage life or, uh, or being active in the city. So that's, that's what we're about.
0: Uh, I like the intersection of fashion and the outdoors. Uh, and a, a, a good angle, I guess, to take. Do you have any idea what the mix is? The mix, uh, The mix for me is... <laughs>
2: Having the technological um, quality of the outdoor and the aesthetically pleasing aspect of the fashion, you know, I think everyone who, who bought outdoor equipment uh, uh, 10, 20 or 30 years ago knew what that every outdoor piece was really an outdoor statement. It meant like mm. you were wearing the hiking outfit in the city, but now things are much, much more refined. And I think the, the city dwellers understood that uh, living in Montreal, Toronto, or Vancouver, you're facing four season, you're facing harsh weather, even taking the subway and walking in the city. So this is where we wanted to be, you know, respecting the, the diversity of climate and uh, and and weather uh, in, the, in the Canadian markets.
0: Yeah, it wasn't that long ago where you know we're talking about some of those names were really kind of you know fringe and on the outside looking in from the mainstream. When you got into North Face, you know the yeah. only person you knew that had one was actually hiking and spending all the time. Now it's uh, it, it it's it's a staple of uh, most people's uh, wardrobe.
2: I totally agree. I think people are looking for essentials or basic basic pieces and realize that. A lot of the outdoor brands have been there for 30 years, pushing the limits of the the fabric and you know the quality. So and now everybody has a piece that they they know they can rely on and they can blend with other more, let's say, fashionable pieces. So
0: yeah, and I think we've learned over the years that you know when you pay for quality, you get quality and uh, it lasts. You know, exactly. sometimes sometimes your sense of fashion is is gone long before your sense of uh, of of the equipment itself. So
2: totally agree that that's where we want to be in the the better. Better buy, better choose uh, area. So.
0: so you made a comment before about being an e-commerce retailer and, and I've seen the term pure play e-commerce retailer. Maybe just explain that to uh, to our audience, what you mean by pure play e-commerce retailer. But for us,
2: it means that everything we do is around the online experience. We have no physical stores. We have three websites. Two of them are transactional. Um, We have an office in Montreal and a distribution center near the airport in Montreal. But if you want to buy from us, you you have to order online. If you want to try our products, you will have to order them, order multiple sizes and colors and ship back what doesn't fit. So really, everything we do has the online experience in its mind. A lot of retailers... Have a blend approach, right? They have stores and a portion of uh, online experience. Our focus for us, hundred percent, the online, the the team thinks about online aspects all the time and perfecting the experience we give the customer uh, every day.
1: The one thing that's remarkable about your site to me is the diversity of brands. I see you have a lot of pretty pretty solid winter brands there. You mentioned the North Face. Uh, another one of my favorites lately, especially in a Laurentian's winter, is Icebreaker. I, I'm, I'm wearing at least two, three Icebreaker items of clothing right now. Uh, tell me about the, the uh, I guess, the, the sophistication of some of these brands. I mean, this is some pretty um, heavily engineered products.
2: But that's it. You know, when, you co- when it comes to outdoor brands, uh, you have to imagine that a lot of the Let's see, the customers of these brands, they practice um, sports and dedicate a lot of hours practicing a certain sport, whether it's climbing or running and, and et cetera. So all the other brands have always pushed the limits of the fabric, the way they, they process their yarn or the fiber. The fiber. And um, and the, the goal, right, is always to kind of achieve some technical qualities, whether the item has to be the lightest or the warmest or the most packable or the most waterproof. So and this this is where like we become very geeky about the products we sell. Uh, Icebreaker, for example, uh, is made of merino wool, and uh, for me, like an image that speaks to the, the quality of their their product is that they take the the wool from the sheep that lives in a in. A, in mountains very high mountains so normally the animal will go from plus 40 degrees celsius when they're walking in the valley and then minus 30 degrees celsius in the mountain where they were where they have to face the hardships of winters so the fiber having to adapt to such a wide range of temperature is is really resilient super soft super warm um, it will stay warm even if it's wet. So this is why a lot of people choose merino wool. And you know what? We have to face this kind of weather range in, in, in Canada, right? So this is why I like this image. So this is one example. Other brands, they, they're they really good about uh, processing their yarn, making it waterproof. They will give it a little twist so that the, the the repellent on it will be more durable. And then they will blend it into a fabric that they will... Cover with repellent again, so they they go in really really small details to make sure that the experience of the customer will be good for many years, even after multiple uh, washing machine cycles and or abrasion on the you know uh, while climbing or skiing and so forth. So, so this is this is where what I like about the brands. This is what got me into this business. I always felt that these products were were much better than let's say the average. T-shirt or or pants on the street, and this is why I'm, we kind of pushed these brands uh, year after year. So.
0: so with with the chain, I mean, you weren't always a full-on e-commerce retailer. At one point, you had some stores. So when you when you made the shift, I mean, obviously, there's a there's a strategic decision to make that shift. Maybe walk us through what led you to that and why. I mean, other than looking back on it and going, "Hey, that was a great move." Now, <laughs> with in hindsight, uh, what, what what led you there, and and what were some of the biggest obstacles you faced?
2: Back in 2004, when I joined the company, we had already a small website. It really started because we were doing a lot of special orders. So we were a small store, really trying to give the best possible advice to our customers. We we didn't have a big store. It was a thousand square feet. So when people visited us, they didn't expect to see all the models or colors, right? We couldn't carry it. Uh, the overall selection, all the possible options from each uh, each brand. So we relied on catalogs. We relied on showing our website and saying, hey, see, what you're looking for, we may not have it in store, but we're able to order it for you and ship it to your, uh, to your destination or to your home address. So that pretty much what started the online for us because we were all already doing a lot of catalog order. Um, and shipping north of Quebec, north, north of Ontario to RCMP or, you know, other specialized uh, customers that were requesting really technical items. Uh, so at some point, I started handling the website, got an interest in Google AdWords, uh, you know, the new online advertising tools that were coming in 2004, 2005, and realized we kind of had a, an opportunity there, right, because we were able to display all the products, all the sizes and colors, width, length, even super technical items that, you couldn't find uh, in in bigger stores because they were so niche that uh, a normal brick and mortar wouldn't even dare carrying it. While well, we were, you know, ordering it, and if it doesn't fit, we'd return it to their brand. So at some point, we saw the opportunity of of expanding through the online world. The competition was fierce, and when it came to brick and mortar, and and we felt that developing the online catalog was a good option for us. We're already good at shipping worldwide, or you know, throughout Canada, and uh, and for us also we, we had lived a few, you know, warmer winter or, you know, the seasonality of the store in St. Denis street. We, uh, we knew that if we we're able to ship orders in other areas in the Canadian market, we were able to kind of uh, leverage a wider customer base, being able to, to, there's always somewhere where, where it's no wing in the Canadian market, but when you you have like a kilometer area around your store, it's tougher sometimes to pass through harder season. So, and, 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 Honestly, in the end, we felt that we were... I've always been an avid online shopper. I would say I'm an early adopter of of buying anything online. And uh, I always thought it was a better experience, you know, being able to shop online on the Sunday morning with your coffee, have everything delivered the the next day, try it at home, see if it fits with your other equipment, if if your wife will like it and so on, and then returning everything. Maybe I'm a lazy shopper, but I felt it was way more efficient than, you know, driving to the three or four stores to find the perfect fit and then regretting not buying the first one. And so we really felt the experience online was better for the customer and, that's where we're willing to invest. Like make a point of try try our way of shopping. You'll never go back after that.
0: I gotta tell you, Alex, the the, the biggest advantage to me of online shopping is not having to deal with people.
2: <laughs> I, I completely <laughs> agree. Some people like going, but I I'm I'm the kind of guy who likes reading everything, everything, everything and and skipping the line all the time. So.
1: Alexander, you do have a partner, right? So tell us about your your co-CEO situation real quick, please.
2: Well, my co-CEO is a, a long-term uh, friend. We were in high school together. Uh, eventually, we moved to Montreal for university, right? And at the time, I was a sales clerk at Altitude Sports, uh, selling products on the floor. And my, my mind was towards being uh, in the outdoors, traveling, and enjoying the staff discount at the, at the store. Um, at the time, I was studying philosophy. So, of course, when you finish your undergraduate in philosophy, it doesn't mean you have a clear career path. Some Some do, but I didn't. And I started asking myself what I wanted to do with my life. And I realized I, I really enjoy the kind of product that we sell. I like the customer we talk to every day. They always have an interesting adventure coming ahead. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I, I like my my, day, my my day-to-day job, right? So maybe I can make that a career. And the online business was starting to pick up. I was taking care of it. Uh, I was seeing what was happening uh, online in the U.S. market and elsewhere. The e-commerce was tra- starting to rise. And... Every evening, or I would say very often, I was coming back to the apartment and was having this, this discussion with Max, uh, Maxim Dubois, my, my co-CEO and, and business partner. And he was uh, an advertising, and he still is uh, an advertising specialist, he was working for a famous agency in Montreal. And at some point, he started helping me, you know, with uh, writing ads for uh, Google Pay Per Click or branding, rebranding, uh, positioning ads in newspapers and things like that. And he got interested in the online advertising too. And um, I started talking with the owner at, at, at that time about buying some shares or, you know, becoming uh, a partner in the business because I've, I wanted th- this kind of motivation and kind of ownership that I, I had my store to, you know, in a way. And um, and Max joined as a marketing director of One People, right? He was his only uh, employee in the marketing department we were a team of 10 maybe at the time and and after a few years, we started having discussions about buying the whole store together. Um, I guess we were lucky and, you know, uh, in the right uh, context to be able to have those discussions. The previous owner was was kind of okay moving to something else. He had other projects, he was a bit older than us, and, and he saw that we were really um, passionate about what we were doing, so he agreed to sell us the, the Altitude Sports banner with the store. And uh, in 2011, Max and I became uh, the owners of Altitude Sports. At the time, we had two stores and an online website that was bigger than the two stores. We had managed to grow the business enough that it became bigger than the two stores. And over time, we made a decision to really... Focus there, so we uh, we ended up closing the stores after a few years when the leases were done. We we thought, look, we we have to really focus on on one thing we can be good at, and e-commerce was the way to go for us. And since that time, we've grown about thirty-five percent every year uh, up until today. So uh, the business has changed quite a lot. Today we're. Uh, 400 employees, let's say, in low season and 800 in, in peak season when we have contractuals for the distribution center and the, the customer experience.
1: Amazing. Uh, qu- quickly, just Alexandre, any advice for, for entrepreneurs who find themselves still employees and who want to make that journey? Is it learning the systems, learning the processes? What steps would would you advise people take to go from employee to owner? I think there's two things I
2: would say. I, I think you have to behave in in the way that of the role that you want to occupy, right? I think yeah, really early on, I, I started seeing the store as my store, even though it was not. And I've always invested my time and and dedication to making things better all around. Um, I, I think you should you should not wait to have a specific role to behave as if you have that role. Uh, I think the, the the previous owner really enjoyed me helping out and and trying to push the limit and seeing that I was passionate. He, he was open to let's say letting me become a partner. Um, so that would be uh, my first advice. And second advice is really surround yourself with the right people um, and be able to accept the advice that they give. Because I, I think there is one thing about finding the, the mentors and or the, the, the skilled individuals that you think could help you uh, along the journey. Um, and this is already a challenge to find them and convince them to help you. But once you have them, uh, Max and I have always being careful about accepting the advices and because it's easy sometimes to think that things don't apply to you or you have have a better understanding of your own reality. And, and a bit like a teenager, sometimes, you know, your mentors will tell you, you should maybe consider this or that, and you will think about your own way, but we were really able to grow faster and take some shortcuts because we benefited from the knowledge of older experienced people that really helped us. So I think the humility to just say, yeah, okay, this is this is work uh, that I think more about it and see how it applies to my situations.
0: Very interesting. On your website, uh, you have in the new in section a, a section called new stories, uh, and you know it really it really doesn't relate to you. I mean, it's about some of the, maybe some of the products and some of the people behind the products. But what was the inspiration of trying to 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 deviate out from the product and kind of give this personal approach to uh, to some of uh, some of the stories that are in within your industry.
2: We try to make everything a little more personal. I think one of the important concepts we have in the business is trust. Uh, we've always seen any of our relationship in a long-term way with our customers, with our employees, with our partners, brands and the and like. Um, when we give advice to our customer, we want to be transparent, honest. If we don't know the answer, we'll say it. We'll find it. We'll, if we don't have the product, we'll tell the customer where to find it. We're really about Kind of making the perfect match between the customer and their product. And even if it means not having the sale, you know, right away, we want them to, to know that they can always call us and, and, and rely on us. Same thing applied with their products. We want them to be able to trust their products, trust the brands that we carry and, and know that if we are advising to choose this brand or this product, they won't be disappointed. And, and the, the stories or, Let's say the, the the context around our brands was always very important because I think as a customer and I, and I am a customer and I was not as uh, educated as I am right now in terms of my own brands right so some, so I know it's tough to choose some customers they have access to too much information right with the uh, especially online it's easy to find tons of reviews on, on anything but it's hard to really believe that okay I'm making the right choice you cannot you can even doubt about the five stars reviews right on a, on a specific website so. So bringing more information about the brand, the people behind their brand, our team, people uh, working at, the, for example, Icebreaker or other of uh, our partners was always you know, an interesting angle uh, just to show how much work is behind those products, how much knowledge is behind the product. Uh, uh, a lot of our brands are very thoughtful about the way they do things. And I think it's it's understated in the market. And this is where we can kind of show It's not just a thing to say this product is better than the other one. I can prove it and let's take some time providing this information in a different light. So that's what we try to do with those new stories.
0: I think you know we can we can it's a nice segue into the next topic, which is you know the importance in the marketplace and the importance in the marketplace isn't just for the user. There's the environmental component, which I know is you know quite big in in, in the way you look at things, and the philanthropic approach to doing things within the community. Uh, you know, a number of people have, have commented in the past a uh, little while on Yvan Chouinard in Patagonia giving away his company. We've also seen you know the re- reuse renew philosophy on Black Fridays. Uh, which were his? Which I know you guys maybe talk to us a little bit about how you how you place yourself and what the influence not only on the products you're selling and the people, but on the environment and 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 giving back.
2: But I think in the outdoor industry, all the brands have always been conscious about this aspect, right? When you enjoy the outdoors, over time you realize that we we are hurting the outdoors in some way, uh, you know, by developing our, our society as we're developing it right now. So. Brands and and retailers in the industry have always been cautious about that and conscious about the impact on on the on the on nature. Um, I I think for in our instance, the first uh, statement we make with our business is if we are able to sell the best possible product that they are durable, that people will enjoy them on a long uh, lifespan. This is already good, right? Instead of buying items and changing them every three months, because you know, fashion change or it wasn't made to resist more than two or three uh, uh, washing uh, cycles. Uh, so that was the first statement. After that, of course, um, everything uh, around how the product is made, how it's uh, the, the supply chain, the fabric, the colors, the the, the chemicals involved in, in this process. Uh, we, we have discussions on a regular basis with our brands around those topics. Um, this year we started doing uh, our B Corp certification. It's a two-year process for us, but we we are auditing pretty much everything. You know, like our, our policies, um, the way we uh, we uh, we buy our products, uh, our shipping method. Um, you know, an all-around tour of the business to to understand our GES uh, footprint and how we can do better. Um, uh, we have uh, a lot of partnership with different organizations i personally i'm on the board of project or winter uh, which is uh, an organization that advocates you know around climate change to to better um, educate every outdoor enthusiast but you know every person in general uh, on how we can make better choices and how we can change our uh, our behavior so it was always an important topic and we have uh, of course, like Patagonia, there are strong brands that are even more vocal about what they do around the environment, and uh, of course, that's very inspiring. What uh, Yvon Chouinard did with his company, I'd say for me, it was one of the reasons I got into business when I was in uh, uh, at university. I had a business ethics class, and we studied uh, quite thoroughly Mountain uh, Equipment Co-op and Patagonia, and and those two businesses I found were were able to you know, grow, drive business, talk about profit and uh, having healthy uh, and healthy development while defending value. So this is this. I think that's what we do with Altitude Sports in the end. And, and every year we try to do better. So in the next few years, we will be a bit more vocal about what we do. We we uh, we have the tendency of not talk about those aspects too much because there's also a lot of greenwashing, uh, you know, in, in general. And. I think these topics are so complex that sometimes you even doubt yourself. That am I really doing a, a, such an impact? But uh, but more more than ever, I, I think we are having a positive impact, and and the B Corp certification will help us see through that and and make choices that are uh, even better.
1: We're chatting with Alexandre Guimont, co-CEO of Altitude Sport, and we'll have his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs on the way. Stay tuned for that. But first, coming up, we'll chat with our tax partner, Peter Joseph Moretis, about the tax implications of rising interest rates. Peter, welcome back. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And Mike, uh, rising interest rates, we expect, uh, you know, at least one more bump, I guess, in the short term, but we'll have to see how the year goes. Uh, Lots of implications there in terms of taxes.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, we always look at interest rates and the 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 effects on the housing market or on credit card debt or everything else. Uh, we always have a tendency to forget there's a tax implications to interest rates. And Pete, uh, I'm sure you're going to give us a little bit of insight into uh, what some of those things that are going to affect all of us uh, with regards to interest rate hikes and taxes.
3: Yes, I know that uh, it's something exactly like you're saying on the financial side. And um, although rates might seem to be... Uh... At the peak, uh, the cumulative effect is starting to have an impact on businesses and uh, owners. So uh, as of January 2023, the government has increased uh, the rates now for the fourth time. Um, Essentially, the prescribed rate, which is uh, the rates that kind of dictate certain tax rules and what the government charges. So it's not just the banks that are increasing what they're charging, but it's when there's a balance owing to the government have increased as of January 1st. The prescribed rate, which is what we use a lot whenever there are loans, certain loans that are made within a related group that where the government needs, uh, requires you to charge a minimum amount of interest. Uh, one of these that we do a lot for income splitting is where uh, someone who has a high income loans funds to a spouse or to another trust for let's say their their kids or their beneficiaries and the income from that loan is invested on the market and earns a rate and that net income after the interest expense uh, actually can get allocated to other family members without it being taxed in the higher income earner so that rate is going to be four percent in january whereas uh, back in June 2022 was 1%. So that's a considerable increase. The good news is uh, any of these spousal or trust uh, loans that were done prior, like in in prior years, they kind of like were locked into the equivalent of a fixed mortgage rate where they get to to keep the same lower rate that they had, which was actually 1% for the long time.
0: So pay those those rates get grandfathered in. So if I signed into an agreement when the rate was 1%, then effectively that gets carried forward as a 1% and doesn't automatically have to get bumped up to the new rate.
3: Correct. Up until that loan is repaid. Essentially if uh, if uh, the spouse or the or the trust repays the loan, uh it it'll continue at at the 1%. It's only new loans that will be at the higher rate. Discuss maybe a little bit the implications
0: of of not using the prescribed rates. I mean, let's say uh, the prescribed rate is four percent, and and you enter an agreement at two percent with somebody. What what ends up being the implication?
3: That's a good question. Essentially, if you if that amount isn't charged, then the person who lent the money uh, will have to report at least that amount of income. So if you don't charge it, then you could be uh, caught with an, an element of double tax, where there's it's still taxable in in the uh, for the spouse. And the, and the and the person who lent the money for example would still have to would still have to is deemed to have uh, that income as well so
0: i lent i lend the money out at two percent the rate's four and i turn around and i and i'm going to get stuck uh, declaring that extra 2% from the 2 to 4%. And my spouse is not going to be able to bump that up from 2 to 4%. they are going to get stuck deducting only the 2%. Correct. So there's a 2% loss right away from, from using the exactly. wrong rate.
3: Okay. Exactly. There's also other, other implications for the prescribed rate. Uh, a lot of uh, smaller run owner-manager companies who essentially draw money from their businesses uh, and at the end of the year, they meet their accountants Six months later, and they essentially declare those amounts as dividends based on an effective date, or they leave them on their balance sheet for at least uh, two balance sheets. There's a rule where advances made to a shareholder, as long as they're repaid or declared as dividend to the shareholder within 24 months, uh, are not included in their income. If they last longer then they are fully taxable, so it becomes like a salary. And uh, since I've been practicing, because the last time the prescribed rate has been at, at this amount was 2007. So for the longest time, it's really been this 1%. And we we've never really worried about what would be uh, the implication to a shareholder that does take money from the company and, and doesn't repay it until the 24 months. But there is actually an interest benefit for a shareholder who takes money from a company. And now that's going to be at 4%. So if ever anybody's a shareholder is taking money from their company and only declaring, let's say a dividend, declaring that amount as a dividend a year and a half later, they might be at risk of, uh, you know, if it's uh, depends on how much is being withdrawn, but there could be now a bit of exposure now for, for some income, like if ever there's an audit for there'd be some interest income that wasn't I, included.
0: I think the implications and, and you go back to 1%, the implications of borrowing money from your company. Uh, I you know Over the years, we've seen a lot of people forget to do the calculations. Well, if it gets added back at 1%, it's not the end of the world. Now we're right. talking about adding it back at 4%. Now we're starting to get into, into a sizable component. And I, and I know just before the holidays, the government uh, looked at indexing some of its government brackets, uh, they're making some Changes to the tax-free savings account limits, uh, capital gains limits. You want to just maybe touch on those quickly before we we finish up?
3: Yeah. So so uh, every year the the government uh, essentially increases certain uh, benefits uh, limits or like like we call the brackets, I guess. So because inflation has gone up, they've also considerably increased a lot of these brackets. So now like the top marginal rate, which used to be two, why I, I always referred to it as 200,000 but now it's 235,000. The the indexation amount for the for 2023 is 6.3%, which is more than maybe the last four years combined really like I think it's it's something that that's going to be uh going to impact. One of the things that like as a tax advisor we look at a lot is the capital gains exemption, which is when uh uh shares are sold is now going to be 971,000 up from below 900. So so that's going to be a real increase for anybody who sells their business. Uh, and the TFSA is is jumping up to, in 2023 to 6,500, up from 6,000.
1: And as we come to the end of the show, let's turn to our guest, Alexandre Guimont of Altitude Sport, and we'll ask the co-CEO for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Alexandre, what do you think?
2: I think one piece of advice for me uh, that, that has worked for me is really connecting with other entrepreneurs, really establishing Bounds with people that you admire don't hesitate to reach out don't hesitate to use linkedin cold call email try to connect through a, a common connaissance. Um, for me i've 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 had a lot of sync asset or uh, you know coffee talk uh, discussion with with a lot of people even worldwide that we're very happy to connect and share best practices and pieces of knowledge. And I find that people are very generous. I, I think they they just you just assume sometimes that they won't have the time or they're too busy. But honestly, like I, I've, I've spoken with so many busy people that were happy to take the time to to share insights. So just try it and and don't be discouraged if you don't reply the first time. Sometimes I've, I've emailed the a brand for seven years until we managed to open their account. And um, and I think the resilience paid off at some point and we're, uh, you know, we have a good relationship now. So just keep trying and, and don't be afraid of reaching out.
1: Thanks, Alexandre. I'm borrowing from a uh, marketer, Mitch Joel here, but he says, uh, your network is your net worth. So I thought that was a good one. And yeah, I assume you agree. And and Mike, just a really great example of of the fact that in some companies, There are entrepreneurs there. They're they're in the company. They're employees. They just haven't become an owner yet. No, I think there's a
0: lot of people that, you know, you, you can usually tell there's some sense of passion and, and excitement and, and 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 sense of ownership, regardless of whether they have title to to shares or not. And, you know, those people are always going to look at this as an entrepreneurial opportunity. And and whether that, like I said, that finds its way into shares or whether that finds its way into the passion and the way they deal with people, um, it's phenomenal. And we all know that when you find those players, when you find people in your organizations like that, that those are the people you want to keep And And, you know, that's the future of of our, our
1: businesses. Thanks so much for stopping by, Alexandre. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. A reminder: you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiring MTL.com for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles over the last decade and a half. See you back here next week. Thanks, Dan.
0: has been a production of tnkr media good talk